Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Shiny Dev series. And boy, if you couldn't tell already, I had so much fun talking with our last episode's guest, and we didn't even cover all the awesome details of his application that we highlighted, his uh, COVID testing locator app for Connecticut. So guess what, folks? He's back. Let's welcome back to the Shiny Dev series, Mike Thomas. So, Mike... Glad you could glad you decided to come back and I'm super excited to dive into some more of the details that you have for us on your app. Thank you so much for having me back for part two, and I'm excited to take a little bit deeper dive in this second segment. Okay, well let's dive right into it. Maybe I will show this workflow diagram that we put together. So this is very simple, what's called CRUD uh, statements. You know, if you're sort of a, a database person, you might be familiar with that acronym, but it stands for uh, create, does it say for, oh man, now I put myself on the spot. I know there's up, <laughs> update, <laughs> update, delete are, are the UD in CRUD. Uh, read, I mean, read has to be the R, right? I would think so. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll, we'll go with create, read, update, and delete. I'm not sure if that is exactly what it stands for, but <laughs> that, you know, it's kind of the, the simple, um, functions that you might be sending to a database to interact with that database. So <laughs> this is again, all in the readme. This is at the bottom of that readme. I really love workflow diagrams for, for shiny apps. I think they really help both, both the technical and the non-technical folks, not just the non-technical people, but even the, the technical folks kind of understand what the workflow is, is behind the application. So that once you do dive into the code and, and see that code, it, it kind of all clicks maybe quicker than it would otherwise. Yeah, and frankly, the attention to detail in this documentation in general is quite important. And you know, there's always the jokes out there of like, oh, I gotta write that documentation now or something like that. But future you will thank you, or even future collaborators will if you do this right up front the first time. And I have some pain points that I've just experienced where documentation was not emphasized enough. And we had to rescue some deployments and kind of figure out who did what, why there's like three entries of the same app in one place. I won't get into all of it, but it was like one of those things where just having this detail up front can make it so much easier. So certainly I love the diagram and I'm trying to get better at doing those from the start and not just like bolted on at the end. <laughs> Awesome. Yes. Yes. No, I agree. So if you, if you report tests in stock, um, you know, it, it pretty much writes those out. There's a few things that I'll show you. Um, it's either just kind of a straight insert new record, uh, into the database or it's an update statement to an existing place, you know, with the newer date and time that has been submitted. Um, if you report tests out of stock, it's a little bit of a different experience because say, uh, you know, I reported that there were tests in stock today at this location, uh, but you reported after that, that they were, you know, they were out of stock yesterday. I wouldn't want your report to overwrite a newer report um, of tests being in stock because maybe they restocked that morning, right? So we have kind of a couple conditional statements here where if you report uh, tests in stock first, we check if that, or tests out of stock, excuse me, First, we check if that place even exists in our database yet. So if you're reporting that tests were out of stock at a location that nobody's made an entry for yet, we don't do anything because that, that data is not going to show in the table. Um, anyways, if that place does exist in our database and in the table, um, we'll check 
to see exactly what I just talked about. Is there a more recent report for this place? And if the case is yes, then again, we'll take, we'll take sort of no action against the database for that. But if there's not a more recent report for this place, uh, you're the most recent report, uh, tests were out of stock at this location, then we'll remove that record from the database. So that's kind of those two conditions that end up in our R code. So we can take a look at the uh, that add record function that we have. So, so we have a couple functions up above that are sort of, you know, kind of out of the box Mongo Lite functions for connecting to a Mongo database where you need to specify um, the database that you're connecting to, the collection that you're collecting to. So in MongoDB, the hierarchy is you can have one database, but you can have multiple collections within that database. I'm not going to go too far into that for folks who aren't interested, uh, who are interested in MongoDB. We have have links in, in the GitHub docs uh, to take a look at that. Absolutely. But um, again, kind of we're, we're checking if we're, we're first grabbing the data. Um, if you remember that add record function passed in a tibble of all the inputs from the user. And, and that's kind of the first, the, the first argument to that add record function. So we're, we're checking if the place ID that they selected on, on that Google map within the UX, if that place, unique place is in a place that's in our database, um, then we are going to take some action. We're gonna create the query string and we're gonna create the update statement because instead of adding a new record, this is gonna be an update statement to that that place. Yep. And, and one uh, thing we, to point out, um, certainly as I was learning MongoDB last year, I, I noticed this too, is that it communicates via JSON, right? So what you're seeing here is, is what Mike's showing here is that the, those strings that are being pasted together are actually JSON formatted strings. And that's one of the nice things about MongoDB is that you can have these records that are nested in nature, no matter how deep it goes. Uh, hence the unstructured term you often hear about with this. So yeah, that's why if you're at first glance, if you're used to things like MySQL or MariaDB or Postgres, you might be thinking, what in the world's going on here? Well, that's why it's a <laughs> Intricate difference in how the records are represented here. That's a really, really good point. Yes, all of the kind of sort of SQLE statements that you would send to, to MongoDB to, to execute queries are, are JSON. And there are R packages uh, for creating this JSON. Um, this was, again, a, a speed to solution for me. It wasn't something that I had been familiar with in the past uh, using those. It might be JSON Lite package. Sure. I'm not sure exactly which ones, but but they can make this whole statement look probably a lot cleaner than I, than I wrote it um, with, you know, with escaping quotes and things like that. So I would definitely recommend kind of going that route. And maybe that's a future improvement um, just from you know, a looks perspective uh, that we could add to this app. But again, then we just send that to the, this update um, function, which is straight out of out of Mongo Lite package. And we send our query and we send uh, the update string to that. And then otherwise, if that place ID um, does not exist in the database, then we just add it as a brand new record using instead of the update function uh, from MongoLite, we're using the, the insert function from MongoLite to insert an entirely new record into the database. So that's the add record function. And then on the other side, the remove record function takes a little bit more uh, thought to it in terms of ensuring again that uh, the submission there is more recent 
than what has has been submitted already. Right. Um, so you, you wouldn't want to remove a record where there's a more recent sighting at that exact same place. So we're grabbing, we have to do some some date time stuff there. So we're, we're grabbing the date, we're grabbing you know the morning, afternoon, or evening as an ordered factor. And then we're first checking to see if that place ID exists in the database, because if it doesn't, then we don't have to take any action because there's no record to even remove. Um, but if it does, <coughs> excuse me, then uh, we are going to, you know, again, format from the database uh, what the date and time for that place ID is in the database on the database side as compared to what the user submitted. And then if the date itself of what the user submitted is greater than what's in the database or more recent, then we send this remove uh, function to it. Then, then we actually remove that record from the database. Then I got to uh, experiencing this the hard way. Okay, what if uh, two submissions were made on the same day, <laughs> but just at different times of day? So, yep. <laughs> you know, you spotted it in the morning, but I said that you know there were no tests there in the afternoon. So that's where that ordered factor comes in. You know, if the date is the same day, but the time uh, it th that the user submitted in their data was greater than the database data time. Uh, then we will remove that function. Otherwise, we take no action. So that's where uh, that's where a lot of the the date time trickiness came in from a user experience perspective. You know, I thought initially about uh, you know just using the timestamp of when the user made that submission, right? Right mm -hmm. in the app. But I realized that hey, maybe I'm just discovering this app the next day, and I actually saw these tests the day before. Oh, um, sure. So we got a lot of feedback like that. And, you know, I didn't want them to say that they, you know, the, the time thing would have just been a, a whole nother input to try to parse the, the time of day that they saw it or ask them to remember, you know, whether they saw it at 1215 versus 1115 or something like that. So that's why we went just for kind of the simple morning, afternoon, evening approach. And uh, so far, that's that's worked well. We haven't seen too many issues. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a microcosm of some of the logic puzzles that you have to solve as you think about, you know, the, the data being entered by the user or at the time it's being entered and how that impacts your records on the back end. So I can Correct. definitely emphasize with having some pretty intricate if else's or nested if else's, depending on how how far that tree goes of the logic path. So I know that Try can be difficult to, to solve. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, I, I think, again, it's a really clean implementation. And I think anybody who looks at this code on GitHub will be able to grok pretty easily how the database is being operated on from the context of the app. So I think it's a great, it's a great use case here of, of that functional approach that we talked about. I appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Um, so we, yeah, there's certainly more we can dive into here. You mentioned the interactions with the um, with the Google APIs. Um, what, are, what were some of the aha moments or the the tricks you had with that? Over than what we saw earlier with the app. Yeah. So so figuring out that you needed both APIs enabled uh, was a little bit tricky. Okay. Um, one thing that I would recommend, uh, you know. Uh, on the Google Cloud platform where you can manage the, these APIs kind of with a single key, I would definitely advocate for, for any production apps or any time that you're starting to work with some of these cloud resources and APIs, 
that you uh, ensure that you are only whitelisting you know, the IP addresses or the, the actual URLs that are going to be using that API. You, know, we're, you do have to pay uh, per ping, essentially. Uh, I think I got a $300 credit that I haven't even exhausted yet. And this has been you know, up for over a month, I think, at, at this point now. Um, but you want to make sure that you, know, you only have a pipeline between your app in the API secured and that, that nobody else can can sort of get at that API or, or ping it or, or, you know, essentially call it more than uh, it, it should be called. So that's one of the, the ahas for me was going into the Google Cloud platform, uh, making sure that I had at least an HTTP uh, refer to the URL where the app is at this point in time. Um, one of the ahas there is it does make it difficult to work uh, simultaneously locally and uh if you're using an http refer as opposed to to an ip address uh, oh. because you you can't set both i can't enable an ip address like my own local machine to kind of do dev work and this http uh refer so that's uh, interesting that, yeah that's kind of a wrinkle that you wouldn't expect at first but i, could I thought say. i could this i thought i could so i try i tried to set the ip address of my my dell this morning for this conversation then i lost uh the online functionality whoa so, <laughs> that's a lesson the hard way <laughs> but we got it back just in time yeah so, really. yes. luckily it uh, only the, takes a minute the last thing the shiny dev series wants to do is break people's apps for preparation <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> no, no tears on the shiny dev series. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was you know kind of, again one of my first introductions into working with Google APIs, and and that that Google Way package is just just phenomenal um, for everything that it's it's provided us with as developers who want to interact um, with the, the Google APIs that they have available. Um, if you go on to, you, you should be able to just Google and pretty quickly find uh, their package down site that they have, which has a whole entire section for Shiny as well for standing these things up. Some great, great boilerplate code um, that you can just copy and paste and edit to your particular use case. So highly recommend uh, checking that package out if you haven't already. Terrific. Yeah. Well, it's always like these intricate things you have to deal with when you're, you're interacting with external services. Um, so I know that there's a lot of um, nice packages out there like Google Way and, and others around the whole Google Compute engine and services. So there's a lot, a lot of content out there. Um, but certainly look at their docs first before you dive into it. So you know kind of what you, you have to expect for like authentication and setting up your account um and certainly don't break the bank so to speak so that, yeah. that tip about whitelisting the api or the ip endpoints is very valuable in these situations yeah and the same thing goes with mongodb specifically but probably any cloud database provider mm -hmm. um, that you'll have so you do have to set up within mongodb uh it doesn't you know automatically whitelist any ip address it it, it doesn't whitelist any to, to start. So you, you have to physically go in at the start and set the IP address or addresses that you want to be able to, you know, make operations against your, your MongoDB cloud database. Um, so that's something I've learned the hard way in the past too. It's, it's a step that's easy to forget. You bet, you bet. 
And um, yeah, so we've covered a lot already with the database interactions, kind of the user experience interface. Um, are there other features or, or parts of the code you'd like to highlight on this? Yeah, let me see. I had a couple other notes. Um, so some things that we, I wanted to lock this down just for Connecticut to start, um, not necessarily, you know, for any reason other than just making sure that started out with a small use case. Maybe it's the consultant in me, the POC, uh, before, <laughs> yep. you know, I, I made it into something bigger. Also, I, I knew that uh, potentially with these APIs, you know, if this did go viral or something like that, which it, it didn't quite, um, <laughs> besides locally, uh, you know, there would have been a significant cost incurred there. Mm, so one of, uh, one of the things that we wanted to make sure of just kind of a, a simple way that I went about doing that. I can actually show it in the app itself. Let's reload. I don't know. Do you have a pharmacy near you, Eric, that I could uh, say I saw a test at? Um, well, we or have could, a, maybe I'll just do one uh, in some other state. Like a C CVS. Yeah. And um, yeah. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do CVS in Boston. So sure. I, I didn't, um, I think there is a way to not through the Google way package, but I would have had to, you know, custom hand spin some code to limit this search box uh, to only, you know, a particular state or a particular region. I see. I, I saw how to do that for a country um, pretty easily, but I, I wasn't able to figure out how to do that for a particular state. Okay. So if you did pick, um, you know, Boston Mass, and you did did click select. I I pop up that same modal. It says, "Oops, it looked like you forgot something. Please ensure you chose an option from each drop-down menu and selected a retail location in Connecticut from the map." Ah, um, so that was right. that was one of the tricky things that we saw. Another thing that we ran into um, that a lot of folks were doing, which wasn't super helpful because pharmacies uh, can have you know multiple locations within the same uh within the same town sure is folks were just putting let me see if i can uh i'll just refresh this whole thing folks were just saying you know i saw these tests at the cvs um or, or they, they wouldn't even say where they saw them they, they would just say you know maybe um hartford connecticut usa and that's what they would submit they said, you know, I saw the Binax now medium stock in Hartford. And that doesn't really help users know exactly where to go, right? It doesn't tell you what that retail location is. Um, so again, we say, uh, you know, it looks like you forgot something. And that's where this final note comes in. Um, the address selected on the map and shown in the map must be a specific retail location with a street number. Mm -hmm. Example, Hartford, Connecticut, USA is not a valid choice. So I'm showing that to you in the UI so that I can show it to you in the back end as well with just some some simple little tricks uh, that we did to ensure that uh, you know this isn't anything super fancy but it works um, so we have these checks this string of checks right here you know the first is pretty uh, th the first couple are pretty straightforward just checking that you know a date was selected um, checking that a place was input on the map but then we have just some string parsing, a little stringer that says, hey, make sure that you find uh, CT in capital letters in the address that they selected. And stringer has this nice little negate function where if 
know, you're kind of using your checks the opposite way. Um, so I'm essentially launching that modal if any of those checks are true, which is, uh, you know, I'm looking for all of these things to be to be false. Um, so th that's where I brought in this negate function and string detect. So we want to make sure that there's there's CT uh, in the address. And likewise, we wanted to make sure that the address started with a number here. So we got some simple regular expression here that says, hey, it has to start with a number zero through nine. And that's how we solve for that Hartford, Connecticut uh, use case that you just saw. One other small um, thing that, that we did just from a formatting you know, UX standpoint, all of these addresses were coming in with a comma USA tacked on at sure. the end of them. Yeah. And just for space constraints purposes, because a lot of people were viewing this, I assume on mobile, um, where we tried to get the best UX as possible. The table is not great, but the buttons, um, the, the buttons are pretty good. Yes. So uh, even when you do click on, you know, spotting a test, we do, I, I didn't go, again, this is speed to solution. I didn't go the whole shiny mobile route, which I would have if I was building, you know, a real production grade app where I had a month or so um, to take a stab at it. Right. But we still do have a pretty good uh, user experience when you're looking at it kind of from the mobile perspective uh, with your inputs stacked at the top and then your, your Google map. And I've used it on my phone many times and uh, it works It works, you know, pretty flawlessly. Yeah, well, so, this is a nice thing that comes with shining out of the box is of course the bootstrap responsive toolkit. So you don't have to have it absolutely perfect to be mobile. And yeah, time is everything, right? I mean, you saw the need and we need you need to get this out there, but with the right balance of kind of what I alluded to earlier, defending against certain things that can happen in the UI, but then with the right backend attention, you're able to get this out fairly quickly. And honestly, depending on your audience and depending on your use case, that is the meaning of production then almost, is just getting this in the hands of the people that need it with the right balance of complexity versus ease of use and making yep. sure it has an impact. So I still think, yeah, what you've done here still has a lot of principles that somebody doing this for the quote, real production use should definitely take note of for sure. Yeah, so so we pushed this out, you know, obviously to, to shiny apps, um, at this URL, COVID test spotter. But because of my, you know, Shiny App subscription, I have a couple, um, I've got room for, for 25 apps or something like that on that subscription. I created a, you know, a dev branch where I would test out new changes and I would push that dev branch to a, uh, out to shinyapps.io at a separate URL. Yes. Like, so I, have, I you know, love that approach. I did that for my uh, silly little shiny calendar app that I do for the Twitch streamers out there that are in data science. So I could test things out when I was debugging all these time zone issues that plagued my existence last year um, <laughs> without breaking the production instance, quote unquote. <laughs> so that's exactly. a great tip. Yep. So that's that's all I did is I is I um, you know sent it to COVID test spotter underscore dev at this this new URL and um, that's where I would test out all my changes before I sent them back uh, you know before I pull requested those into master and then refreshed uh, the shinyapps.io so it's you know as data scientists you know, we try to do our best to you know be sort of that that build those full stack production environments, unless you have a great IT team that helps helps do that for you. But um, I think there's there's a lot of ways that we can sort of hack at that and, and try to bring some of those principles 
in, in, in simpler ways. You bet. Yeah, great, great approach. And, and it's a bit of a tangent, but as I was doing this for that calendar project, they even had a script in Gollum where it has the deploy.r script. And it has that snippet of code for like adding the app.r file. And then, you know, you could even do some container stuff. But I, I massage it a little bit to say, if I'm on the dev branch of my local repo, then with the RS Connect package, deploy to that dev instance of Shiny Apps.io. But if I'm on the main branch, deploy to the, the you might say, the production version. So you can even script out some of this too, which is really nice. That's brilliant. You're always two steps ahead of me. That is awesome. I need to do that. That's oh, well, it, yeah, it, it just took some getting used to, but it saves me from manually accidentally pushing the deaf person to pride, which could uh, cause a lot of trouble in certain cases. It's, which is easy, easier to do than, yes. than yes. Very much we so. I think it is. Yeah, so, so I handed the uh, handled the removal of that USA at the end of those addresses right in the Reactable statement itself. Uh, Reactable is a, a really awesome package for interactive data tables. For those that you know are familiar with using DT, I would recommend trying out Reactable just so that you have another tool in your arsenal as yes. well. Um, has a lot of really nice custom rendering capabilities, which allow me to uh, essentially specify this chunk here, which I can say, yo, for those cell values, I can actually create this simple function where we pass the value in that cell in the table on this address column. And we can just call some simple R code for a string replace here, where we remove USA from the end of that uh, address, which is awesome. So oh, that's, that's yeah. how that uh, works. I love Reactable. I'm using it in all my apps in production now. I get so many nice enhancements to it with the ability to customize as I see fit with, like you said, these specific columns, these specific cell styles. So um, I'm hoping I can get more into the innards of Reactable sooner than later, maybe straight from the source, as they say. So stay tuned. There's a little teaser there. <laughs> nice, nice. That's awesome. Yes, I've fallen in love with it. You know, it, it has a lot of really simple functions for, you know, renaming the column names so that you don't have to do some sort of dplyr rename statement before you pass everything to the data table. Um, re really handy, very intuitive API in my experience. Yeah, well, it's an excellent looking table. Um, and that UX, that first impression sometimes makes everything, especially when you want to get this out the door quickly, but yet make the experience polished enough so that at least the residents in Connecticut where this was targeted towards would enjoy using this as opposed to, like you alluded to earlier, um, some of those uh, less than stellar government uh, websites. <laughs> I won't say more, but yeah. <laughs> some, no, sometimes simple uh, simple that works is, is the best solution. Yes, so. absolutely. Yeah, so I think those are probably most of the, the tricks that I've run into um, that I would share. Let me see if I... I had anything other than that. No, I think that's I think that's probably all the tricks that I have to, to point out in terms of the Google Way package, just handling some of those little edge cases that you're always gonna come across, right? When you're launching a shiny app to users that they're gonna find for you saying, hey, you know, I, I was allowed to enter an address out in you know, Alaska or something like that. Uh, and, you know, just handling those kind of on a one-off basis, some of the date time tricky handling for those insert and update right. and, and delete statements. Um, 
hopefully that provided a good walkthrough of a, a couple different approaches that we were able to tackle yeah from a code standpoint yeah really um solid approaches here and again this is not just an innovative use case for you know the residents in connecticut this is a great learning um thing to build upon if you want to do this for another situation whether it's COVID related or not there's a lot of principles here that i think people can take from and you did mention um maybe some plans for the future but i was going to ask kind of what are you planning to extend it with if, if at all yeah, so um, a couple things that you know I had thought about was potentially finding a place on the homepage. You know, and again, I really don't want to do anything that diminishes the user experience in any way. But finding a place maybe on the homepage with some sort of a leaflet map that shows you the closest uh, COVID uh, tests, at-home tests that are available to your location. Uh, that might encompass the user having to give you their location, which sometimes people aren't necessarily comfortable with doing. I know I uh, can be notorious for clicking the X button on that prompt whenever it launches uh, on Chrome or whatever browser I'm in that says, hey, we want to right. know your location. We want to know your location. So I can empathize. I can empathize with that. Um, but, you know, we did collect the latitude and longitude from the, the Google uh, Google through Google Way um, package from the, the Google Maps API for you know the locations that, that were selected. So we do have the ability to, to geocode those on a map if that's something that we wanted to do in the future. Yeah, that's an excellent idea. And you know, you might say the joke of nothing's ever quote unquote done, but you know, there I think what you've been doing with user feedback is is very nice too. So it sounds like you've gotten feedback from users of this and you've been able to iterate on that quite rapidly. Yeah, we, we have it. We, we had a lot initially. And, you know, like I said, in the last week or so, things have, have died down a bit, but it's also, you know, just honestly a function of, you know, what's going on out in the world currently. You know, True. COVID, COVID case numbers are dropping pretty much whenever I go into, uh, you know, a store nowadays, I, I see at home tests available. There's not too many locations that, that don't have them available. Supply has gotten better. Uh, a lot of people have gotten them through the mail, uh, through right. the government. They got their four tests or, or whatever. So I think supply is getting better. Case numbers are getting down. So we're just going to you know, sort of go with the flow and, and iterate and see sort of what the next solution is that, that needs to be solved. And maybe that's enhancing this app in a different way, or, or maybe that's creating something completely different. Yeah, well, I've really enjoyed going into the deeper dives of this, but um, having you on is a great opportunity to give you a, a chance to say um, some of your thoughts on something we alluded to kind of at the top is what experiences you've had through, you know, your work with Catchbrook on building shiny apps in production settings. I'm just curious from your perspective, um, what are some of the things you commonly see in your projects or maybe common threads to maybe sometimes struggles of getting shiny in production and any advice you have for people to set themselves up for success to build, you know, a really great application in that setting. Yeah. So to me, the idea of production really starts um, with the ideas of reproducibility and ensuring that you're using a lot of those principles that come with reproducibility. And to, to me, reproducibility ha has three components. Um, the first one is the operating system that the app is running on. 
The second is the software dependencies, which are the first and foremost, the version of R, and then the version of each R package that you're using. And then the final piece of that puzzle is the, the code that runs the app. Um, so when you put something into production, you have to be cognizant that you have to specify those three things. And, you know, Eric, as you know, even when we do do a great job and do our best job of specifying those three things, sometimes stuff, I'll, I'll just say stuff still happens, yes. right? Yes, but, my um, wife has we, been we, that way the last month or so. <laughs> <laughs> but we still want to try to provide as many safeguards as we can as possible because mm -hmm. when stuff does happen, uh, usually if we have those three principles in place, it's very easy for us to track down the stuff that, that has happened and rectify that a lot quicker than if we didn't have some of those things locked down. You know, if, if, a, if, if suddenly, uh, you know, you update the version of, of dplyr that you're using because you, you didn't have that sort of lockdown in your app and a function gets deprecated or goes away, um, you know, that might be a hard thing to, to trace back on. So right. that's that's one thing that that I will recommend is starting with the principles of, of reproducibility. Another thing I'll recommend that comes up a lot with Shiny as we do some education and, and you know making sure that what we're handing over to the client um, is is you know stable and good is I say that warning messages in your console are there for a reason. <laughs> don't right. Don't ignore them. They're actually your friend, I promise. And it, it probably has to do with an argument in the function that you're using. So, uh, you know, if, if you do just copy and paste something from Stack Overflow that uses a function that you're not familiar with, first take the time to put that function in the help pane, right, in our studio and look at the different arguments that that function has and, uh, you know, what exactly those arguments call for. I think, you know, I tend to, to do that every single time that I encounter uh, most functions, you know, even ones that I am fairly familiar with, I like to take a look at all the different options that they have for arguments, because depending on my, on my use case, uh, some of those that I don't often use might be really useful right. to me for that particular project. So that is another recommendation that I have. I, I kind of have a little bit of a mishmash here of thoughts, but, um, you know, Shiny gives us reactivity as well, which I, I know is something that you've talked about at length on the podcast, um, but but reactivity is super powerful, but it's costly. It, it, there, it comes with a cost um, in terms of speed and, and user experience. So use it wisely. Yes. If there's if there's data that you can share between users, uh, opportunity to cache things that may be reused by other users, it can really pay off. Um, and you know the the difference between an observe and an observe event, if you have the option to use an observe event and maybe wait until the user has made all of their selections like we did in the app on that left side pan panel uh, and then click submit, you know, don't grab any of those inputs until that submit button is clicked. Exactly. Um, otherwise the app will always be listening at all times and, and it, it will lead to a, you know, a slow experience, especially in situations of concurrency um, and a lot of users. The other thing I'll say is, is modularization leads to much me, much easier management of a shiny app. You know, the, I would say that the first step towards modularization is just uh, functions, right? In, in an R directory or something like that, right. functionalizing your app. Uh, the, the second step is, is leveraging packages like Gollum. Um, <laughs> so 
I see a lot of people who are trying to do so much in a single function and it makes it extremely difficult to, to both interpret what's going on in that function and debug it when it fails. Um, so my recommendation to those people is actually to do something that, that really helps me, which was go on GitHub and, and read some of the source code from your favorite popular R packages. Yes. So I find myself spending a ton of time reading the source code uh, behind many of the tidy models packages because we do a lot of predictive modeling as well. Cool. And the way that those authors like Max Kuhn write the code is so modular that it makes it really easy to hone in on the area that I'm interested in and understand what's going on. And a lot of times you can go through his whole repository of functions and there aren't any functions longer than like 50 or 60 lines of code. So I would highly recommend, you know, following that approach because as you modularize things, they become easier to consume, easier to debug. Um, and I think understanding that approach to our package development, as opposed to shiny apps, I think it can help you not only improve your code on any project that you do, but also understand how modularization extends to shiny in shiny modules and the Gollum package to essentially accomplish those exact same concepts, but from, you know, an interactive web server standpoint. So those are my, some of my recommendations. Well, I certainly resonate with almost all of them. Or well, actually I do resonate with all of them. What am I saying? Um, but you said it way better than I have previously. And frankly, um, as a self-professed cheerleader slash uh, early adopter of Golem, it gives me a great time to say this once again, and I'm, I'll say it every time it comes up. Once you go Golem, you don't go back. Like I cannot That's go correct. to life with making an app, no matter big or small, without it as a package, because of all the nice things it gives us, the principles it outlines to us. And and Colin, if you're watching, obviously, great job with Golem. You know that. <laughs> Thank uh, you very, very much. Yes. Yes. Um, so I, I use a lot of that tooling, as you mentioned. Um, one other thing that I've learned kind of the hard way, uh, expounding upon some of the points you meant about reactivity, is that sometimes when you get to these situations where you do these dynamic UI generations, where maybe a certain select input is going to determine what you show them later on, I've seen situations where they did all of that on the server side with like the UI output render UI. Maybe for a couple of them, it's fine. But when you have like 20, 30, 40 of these, that really can bog down the entire back end of it. So um, I'm hoping people start taking advantage of like more of the client side updating, like with the, say, update select input or update numeric input within the like. That can actually save a lot of potential headaches with a UX. And that is something that I was guilty of. I, I did UI outputs for everything I thought was dynamic, but through actually some of the advice that Colin gives in engineering production shiny and what you just mentioned, there is such a thing as too much reactivity. And it's not always where you think it is. All the UI output stuff is also reactive in a sense. So yeah. finding ways to trim that down to when you need it, go ahead and use it. But then there are other tricks at your disposal that you just might not know about unless you, unless you, like you said, read the docs, read the, the pages of like these update functions and look at how the source code does it. It's, it's a great win-win for everybody.
Yeah, yeah. The, and the shiny gallery, you know, that our studio has hosted does a great job of putting together, you know, putting up uh, nice apps that, that you can look at to, to take a look, browse through that source code, see how folks are, are building some of those nice uh, production grade applications. So yep. I totally agree. And I, I very much empathize with the fact that I think uh, render UI and UI output should be a last resort. <laughs> That's that's the best way to say it. Yeah, um, that's why I'm so glad I have you on. You know how to how to summarize this in ways I could never think of. Yep, that's <laughs> perfect. Perfect advice there. Um, so as you can tell, I so much enjoy talking to you about all things R and Shiny. That's why we've had a great friendship over the the, the years. So, um, but for those that want to get in touch with you and maybe get in touch with what you what work you do with Catchbrook, um, what's the best way they can get a hold of you? Yeah, you can uh, go to catchbrookanalytics.com to check out what we do. And we do have a contact form through there if you want to get in touch with us. Uh, you can reach out on LinkedIn. That's one of the best places to, to reach me as well. Uh, we're, we're on LinkedIn. You can search our company at, at Catchbrook Analytics. So you can, can search me as Michael Thomas uh, on LinkedIn. I think we'll have all the, all the links in the show notes. You can check out our GitHub. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Please feel free to reach out with, with questions, comments uh, about you know any of the stuff that you think uh, might be useful to you. Yeah, well, I certainly appreciate you uh, coming on to the Shiny Dev Series. We had so much to talk about, but I was looking forward to this for a long time. And we'll be having all the links that we talked about in the episode show notes. And speaking of resources, um, as we close out, I, I, I admit I, I can't resist this, but um, if you haven't been following lately, the Shiny Dev Series site just got a major makeover, folks, and it's actually a lot more fun to interact with uh, these days. So we've got links to all the previous interviews, which this one is going to go up very soon after this, after our editing's done. We will have we have the guest page where you're going to be front and center on, on this once we get through all the editing. It's just a lot more fun to work with. So certainly if you've been away from shinydevseries.com you know, for a while, it's a lot more pleasant to go to now. And we'll be having more content on here in different categories, maybe some blog posts when I get back to writing stuff. And I'll start pouring over some of my uh, chaotic adventures from live streams over here too. So, um, so certainly um, if you've had to throw that link out there on social media if, if, if you'd like to help the show out a little bit. But again, Mike, great to have you on here. You're welcome back anytime. Um, you have so many great thoughts about using Shiny and R in, in production settings and, and frankly, the community in general. So again, thank you so much for, for being on board with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for, for doing this podcast. It has taught me so much along my Shiny journey just to be able to hear from, from others who are on this journey as, as well. So I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, we're going to close up shop here and um, again, stay tuned via the website and on the, the, the Twitter account at the Rcast and at Shiny Dev Series for updates on the show, updates on my uh, live streaming exploits and who knows what else comes up there. So hope you all have an excellent day or night wherever you're tuning this in from and we'll be back with more great content of the Shiny Dev Series in the very near future. So Thank you so much, everybody, and we'll see you all again next time.